Welcome, and thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. We want you to get healthy and stay healthy with help from evidence-based advice from our physicians, healthcare providers, and researchers. Diabetes is a long-lasting health condition that affects how our body turns food into energy. Who is at risk? What are some changes you can do now to avoid being diagnosed, or if you have been diagnosed with diabetes, what can you do to keep it under control? Here to talk to us about diabetes is Dr. Shaley Felton, endocrinologist with Texas Tech Physicians and TTUHSC Associate Professor. Dr. Felton, thanks for coming on our podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do here at the Health Sciences Center? Thank you for having me. Um, My name is Shaylee Felton, and I'm an endocrinologist here in the internal medicine department. I just recently joined faculty as an associate professor in May of this year, but I have been, Lubbock has been home for a number of years. Well, welcome back to the Health Sciences Center, and thanks again for coming on our podcast What is diabetes and what is the difference between type 1, type 2, and gestational diabetes? So diabetes just really refers to a condition where blood sugars are elevated. Um, The different kinds of diabetes provide us an explanation for why that that occurs. So type 2 diabetes really is an issue with insulin resistance. And very simple terms, all that means is that Typically, when your blood sugar goes up, the pancreas produces insulin in response to that blood sugar elevation and helps to bring that blood sugar down. When you have insulin resistance, the pancreas is having to work and produce extra insulin to achieve the same result. So when a patient becomes type 2 diabetic, it's when the pancreas is no longer able to keep up with that demand and blood sugars start to go up as a result. Gestational diabetes is sort of can be classified or grouped with type 2 diabetes. It's obviously for pregnant women um, who also have insulin resistance. And so they have increased insulin demands because they're pregnant and also because the placenta produces hormones that are important for the nutritional status of the baby, like prolactin, progesterone, corticotropin-releasing hormone, to to name a few. But all of those hormones also cause an increase in insulin resistance. So if a woman has that predisposition, Oftentimes, pregnancy will kind of push them over the edge during the time that they're carrying the baby. When they deliver, oftentimes that defect reverses. However, a mom who does have gestational diabetes is at much higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes later in life. And then lastly, I think you asked about type 1 diabetes, and that is sort of a unique process in that it's an autoimmune condition where our body is making antibodies that attack the beta cells in the pancreas, which actually produce insulin. So these antibodies kind of work to kill off more and more of these insulin-producing cells where then the body can no longer produce enough insulin, and again, blood sugars start to go up, and that's when the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes is made. How many people are diagnosed with diabetes and who is at risk for getting diabetes? So diabetes is truly an epidemic right now. It's estimated that there are 425 million people worldwide that have diabetes. In the United States alone, 10% of the population has a diagnosis of diabetes, and that's not really even taking into account the folks that have not been diagnosed. And probably it's thought that there's 1.5 million new cases of diabetes diagnosed every single year. 
There are certain populations that seem to have a higher incidence of diabetes, such as African Americans, um, the Pima Indian population, Hispanic Americans. Also, we know that there's a hereditary component. So the lifetime risk of a patient that has a parent with type 2 diabetes is 39%. And somebody that has a first-degree relative that has type 2 diabetes, they're 5 to 10 times more likely to develop diabetes in their lifetime. So can you expand a little more on what are the risks to having undiagnosed diabetes? So the risks for undiagnosed diabetes are essentially the same as somebody that knows that they have diabetes, but it's uncontrolled. And so we start to worry about small vessel damage, and that's when we talk about neuropathy or the misfiring you know, of the nerves and the feet especially that we hear about. Um, you can get bleeding in your eyes and those small blood vessels back there, which can eventually let to lead to blindness if that's not treated or taken care of. Um, it can also cause damage to the kidneys over the long term. And then we also worry about large vessel disease, and that's where we worry about strokes and heart attacks. And you can also get placking in the blood vessels in your legs. It seems that type 2 diabetes is more common. What steps can people take to prevent diabetes, and can it be prevented if there is a history of diabetes in the family? So type 2 diabetes is definitely the most common form of diabetes in what we talked about and before. Unfortunately, we can't change our genetics, but the things that we do have control over is our lifestyle. So for all adults, it's recommended um, that we do 30 to 45 minutes of moderate intensity exercise five days per week to help not only decrease insulin resistance, but also to kind of maintain a healthy weight. The other thing is, is that for our folks that are overweight and obese, probably the biggest disease-modifying factor is if we can get those patients to lose 10 to 15% of their body weight, it can significantly impact the trajectory of developing diabetes and its progression. Can you address some myths about diabetes? Can a keto diet, for example, reverse diabetes? And what about weight loss surgery or other remedies Because if you search on the web, there are lots of natural remedies and treatments for diabetes out there. Um, So I don't think that the right verbiage in the situation is really reversing diabetes as it is sort of risk factor modification. Um, Unfortunately, when somebody has the predisposition to diabetes, it's really hard to undo that predisposition. That's where we go back to that genetic piece that we talked about. However, there are certainly things that we can do. We already mentioned a few with the diet and exercise piece. Um, Keto diets have become really popular in the last few years, and they can be a very effective strategy in helping with blood sugar management. So under normal circumstances, when we eat a meal with carbohydrates and sugar, our blood sugars go up. The pancreas produces insulin in response to that blood sugar spike. When the pancreas can no longer keep up with that demand, that's when the blood sugars remain elevated. In this In the case of keto, when patients are eating a very low-carbohydrate diet, they just don't have that same blood sugar spike that occurs because they're not eating sugars and carbohydrates in that situation, or they're eating them in moderation. And so as a result, you know, the pancreas is just not having to work that hard to meet that blood sugar spike because it's just much more tempered in that situation. In my experience, it is very challenging for patients to stay on a diet such as keto lifelong. So it can be a useful strategy in the short term, especially if it does help with weight loss to help decrease the insulin resistance that way. 
But what we really counsel our patients on is moderation. And so we try to ask patients to eat carbohydrates in moderation and have them limit it to 30 to 45 grams with meals and 15 grams of carbohydrates with snacks. And then often we will also have them combine those carbohydrates with protein. And the reason that that's important is because it really does slow down the absorption of the carbohydrates from the GI tract. So the blood sugar spike after a meal is not as pronounced is what we see if they're eating carbohydrates alone. What about alcohol? So alcohol, I think diabetes or not, you know, we always want to sort of preach again, kind of moderation. Alcohol from a diabetes standpoint, I mean, it is a lot of carbohydrates. So just how we talked about carbohydrates in food, there are carbohydrates in alcohol. And so same thing. And it's a lot of simple sugars. So a lot of people can get a big blood sugar spike after they drink. And then in turn, they can also get a big blood sugar crash afterwards. Do all diabetics need insulin or medication? Not necessarily. Um, it really depends on where they are caught in, you know, in their disease. So right now, there really is a push to try to identify folks more in the pre-diabetic and the impaired glucose tolerance stage, because this is where lifestyle modifications, we can get a lot of bang for our buck. Even if somebody is newly diagnosed with diabetes, oftentimes we will start them on medications at the get-go. But if they are successful at losing that 10 to 15% of their body weight that we had discussed and they're good about their exercise, I mean, it is not unusual for us to be able to decrease medicine doses and completely get them off at some point. Why do some people with diabetes have problems with foot infections? So again, that typically is for a patient that has more uncontrolled diabetes. Oftentimes they have the neuropathy that we talked about earlier, that misfiring of the nerves. When somebody has neuropathy, um, they have pain, they, but they also have a significant amount of numbness. So it's not unusual to hear a story where somebody is walking barefoot and they step on something so they get a cut or a sore on their foot. For somebody that doesn't have diabetes, they're able to heal that. But when your blood sugars are high, it's much harder for us to heal a cut or a sore on our foot or anywhere for that matter. And then because their blood sugars are high, bacteria really like that environment. And so it's much more apt to get infected. So Again, we counsel our diabetics on doing good foot exams, wearing shoes always, even in the house, to prevent that from happening. And if they were to get a cut or a sore on their foot and they start to see redness around that site, warmth around that site, drainage, then we always ask them to seek care immediately. Let's say someone's blood tests show high blood sugar. What's next for them? Can they continue to see their primary care provider or should they see a specialist? So if a patient has a fasting blood sugar greater than 100 or a random blood sugar greater than 200, the next best step is to have a hemoglobin A1C run. This is a screening test that allows us to get a feel for what that patient's average blood sugar has been over the last three months. There are cutoffs, you know, that have already been predetermined with these A1C numbers that help us differentiate between quote-unquote normal, pre-diabetes, and diabetes. Most type 2 diabetics are taken care of by their primary care doctors. Um, 
A referral to an endocrinologist is usually initiated if the patient prefers to, you know, to do so, or if the primary care doctor feels that in spite of their best efforts, that blood sugars are remaining uncontrolled. The other subset that we see is now there is sort of a lot of diabetes technology available that allows patients that have diabetes to have sort of better quality of life, whether we talk about insulin pumps or continuous glucose sensors. And oftentimes the primary care doctor will refer to an endocrinologist to help aid getting patients on those devices. Perhaps someone hasn't had their blood work done. Are there any symptoms that they should worry about or look out for? So when blood sugars are high, that often in the, in the short term presents as frequent urination, excessive thirst, and in spite of all of that, weight loss during that time. So if someone is experiencing those symptoms, it certainly should be an indication to do a diabetes screen, especially if there's a family history. How can people learn to accept that they have diabetes and what if they revert to their old habits? I think the acceptance is the hardest part. Um, And so in the beginning, um, when somebody is diagnosed with diabetes, I think oftentimes um, there is sort of this period of shock and denial. And then once they do accept that, then that's also the time where any of the education and counseling that we do is the most impactful. From what I see in my experience is that patients during that time are very motivated, you know, to make good dietary and lifestyle changes. The harder part is when we're a few years away from that and when complacency starts to set in because this is a lifelong disease and that's why we talk about making lifestyle changes and not doing a diet per se. So if they go back to eating the way that they were, um, stop moving and they gain back the weight that they perhaps lost in that initial time frame, it would not be at all unusual to have to restart medications if they were not on medicines or intensify treatment if they already are on medications. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I think I would just use this moment to sort of stress the importance of using the resources that we have available to us. I think the diet is a big piece, and a lot of the local grocery stores do have dietitians and nutritionists that are available free of charge um, to help folks that are dealing with different health conditions make good, healthy choices while at the grocery store. Um, From an exercise standpoint, I think an accountability partner is a great idea. So on the days that we don't want to go to the gym or don't want to walk, it's, you know, we're more inclined to do so if we know we're meeting somebody there. And then lastly, when you have diabetes, the American Diabetes Association very much does recommend routine checkups with your doctor, sort of on an every three to six month interval, um, just based on how well controlled your diabetes is and what other health conditions that you might have. Well, thanks for all that information. And again, thank you again for coming on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check. Make sure you subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts so you won't miss our next episode. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Texas Tech Health Check is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and produced by Tierra Castillo, Susana Cisneros, and me, Melissa Whitfield.